Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Turn to Proverbs chapter 6. Finally, after five chapters of Solomon kind of extolling the virtues of wisdom, after five chapters of what are essentially introduction, we finally get into a bit of practical advice about how you should conduct your life. And this is the first example that I spoke of in the introduction to Proverbs where I said sometimes the ideas don't really follow a pattern. It's just whatever Solomon thought of next. And so chapter 6 is going to start with financial advice, which is really interesting. And then he's going to go from there into wicked men and six things God hates and the seventh an abomination. And then he's going to go right from there to sexual morality. And so those things don't necessarily follow a pattern that you could outline and say, oh, I see why Solomon went from that to that to that. But it is life advice, and we will deal with each one separately. Hopefully, we'll get through chapter 7 tonight, because at the end of chapter 6, when he introduces the concept of sexual morality, the whole of chapter 7 is also about that. Chapter 6 and chapter 7 both have brief introductions where Solomon is going to say again, pay attention to what I'm saying. And he's going to personify wisdom again and speak of wisdom as a valuable thing and then start handing out his advice. For instance, chapter 6, verse 1 says, My son, if you have become surety for your neighbor and have given a pledge for a stranger, well, then he's going to say, you need to get out of that. Now, what you need to know in terms of background here is that Israel was told in the law of Moses that they were to lend to one another, to fellow Israelites. And they were not allowed to charge usury. In other words, if you go to the bank right now and you borrow some money, they will charge you interest. In other words, you'll borrow $1,000, but by making the payments over the course of months, you might give them back $1,040. And that is called interest. I would like to go on record right now with saying, I hate interest. It's, it's one of the reasons that I have kept myself free from debt as much as I possibly can because I don't like the idea of just giving somebody my money for no reason other than here. So he says that if you become surety, which is like saying if you co-sign a loan that is a loan based on usury, then you're going to get trapped. Now, the law says that even though an Israelite couldn't charge usury to another Israelite, you were allowed to charge usury, and oftentimes pretty heavy usury, if it was a stranger. 
if it was somebody who was not an Israelite, if you were to give them some of your property, you could expect to get something back in exchange for that. So when Solomon says, if you become surety for your neighbor and give a pledge to a stranger, he's speaking right in terms of what the law of Moses says. If you become surety for someone who is not an Israelite, because those are the only people who could be charged usury or interest. But if you've made yourself the guarantor, the co-signer, the surety for your neighbor, if you've given a pledge for a stranger, he's going to say that that usually doesn't work out well. That's not a smart way to handle your own money. And so he's going to say, get yourself out of it as quickly as you can. Verse 2 says, if you've been snared by the words of your mouth, in other words, if you've agreed to this, then your own mouth has trapped you into an agreement that you want to get out of. If you have been snared by the words of your mouth, if you have been caught by the words of your mouth, notice that language snared and caught is the language of trapping an animal. You would lay out a snare for an animal. And so if an animal fell into your trap, he was caught by it. So Solomon says, if you use your words to make yourself surety for a loan that a stranger, a non-Israelite, is taking, then that is going to come back to bite you. So here's what he says. Do this then, my son. And deliver yourself. In other words, get out of that agreement. Since you have come into the hand of your neighbor, in other words, since your fate lays in your neighbor's decisions, I mean, if your neighbor doesn't pay the loan, you become the surety for the loan. You're going to end up getting trapped by your neighbor or by a stranger's inability to pay. So you are trapped by your neighbor's hand. So go and humble yourself and importune your neighbor, says the NASB. It's an interesting combination of words because it's humble yourself, which means make yourself low. Don't be prideful in doing this. But then go importune that neighbor, which means inconvenience him as much as you can. So humble yourself in the way you go to him. Don't do it in a haughty or a prideful way, but never stop asking him that he would release you from that bond. So go and humble yourself and importune your neighbor and do not give sleep to your eyes nor slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself. And then he's going to use a couple of poetic examples. And he says, deliver yourself like a gazelle delivering himself from the hunter's hand or like a bird from the hand of a fowler, which is just somebody who goes out and catches birds in snares. But if a fowler were to set up a snare and a bird escapes the snare, the bird is going to fly away. He's not going to wait there and go, oh, yeah, you caught me. Oh, well. well, that is the relationship that Solomon is saying you ought to have to interest, to becoming surety, to co-signing a loan, to becoming the guarantor for a loan that somebody else is actually responsible for. Because if they don't pay it, you're going to be hooked with it. 
So get out of those kind of deals, says Solomon. And then right from there, as long as he's talking about finances, goes into more financial advice and talks about how if you're going to make money, you got to work. You got to get up every day and put in some effort. Not to be too political, but very unlike the very socialized notion that people ought to sit at home and just get a check every month and guaranteed minimum wage for everybody. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. The Bible says if you want to do well, get out there and put your back into it. So, verse 6, go to the ant, O sluggard. In other words, go and observe an ant. Yes, sir? Back to the opportunity. I'm confused yeah. about who it applies to. Is it applying to the person that he co-signed for, or is it applying to the lender? Actually, no. I wouldn't even put the lender in the equation. It's applying to the person who co-signed, the person who is the surety, but then he needs to go to the person who took the loan and beg them to let them off the hook. So, right. If I co-signed a loan for Megan, which I actually did for her first car, but in that situation, what he is saying is, now, if Megan were a stranger, not an Israelite, who has no great love or devotion to Israel, he might very well not keep that deal. He might very well run away. And if he does, you're going to be stuck holding that loan. So don't put yourself in that position. That's just not a smart move. So therefore, go to the person, like I would go to Megan, and I would be humble about it, but I would never stop asking her. That's the importunity. Until she said, okay, okay, Dad, and, and took my name off the note. Fortunately, she did pay for her car, so I have no complaints there. But she also did pay interest when she bought the car. And I don't like interest. Does that make more sense? Okay. So starting in verse 6, go to the ant, O sluggard. Now, he's going to use this word sluggard several times. It's a good old English word that means lazy, good for nothing. It means somebody who won't get up and go do the work. It's somebody who'd rather fill their belly and have lots of sleep. Go to the ant, O sluggard, and observe her ways and become wise. The ant has no chief, no officer, no ruler. In other words, the ant doesn't have a boss. The ant isn't doing what somebody else told them to do. And yet, she prepares her food in the summer. She gathers her provision in the harvest. She knows enough to go out and do the work. Go and gather when the food is fresh. Go out there in the harvest. Go out during the summer. Go out during the growing seasons and gather food because winter is coming. So Solomon says, take that as your example, O sluggard. Usually a lazy sluggard person will only do something when somebody over them, more powerful, a boss or a chief or a ruler, makes them go do something. 
But he says, look, the ant doesn't have anybody telling them what to do, but they get out there and do the work so that they can survive the winter. She prepares her food in the summer. She gathers her provision in the harvest. How long will you just lay there, oh sluggard? That's the whole idea is that they're just not doing any work. They'd rather lay around. When will you arise from your sleep? Verse 10, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. That word is also to sleep. So he's saying, that's your life. Your whole life is, I need a little more sleep, a little slumber. I need to fold my hands on my fat belly and go to sleep. And he says, you do that, verse 11, and your poverty will come in like a vagabond. In other words, like a thief. And your need will come in like an armed man. Your need, your poverty is suddenly going to overtake you and you're going to be powerless to do anything about it the same way that you would be powerless if an armed man burst into your house and started taking your stuff. Your poverty is going to come upon you because you didn't Observe the lesson that even the ant knows, which is when it's time to work, you work. And then through that work, you accumulate the things you need. And if you don't work, if you sleep all the time, then your poverty is going to overtake you. Verse 12, a worthless person, a wicked man, is the one who walks with a false mouth. The one who's telling lies all the time. Now, by the way, there is an interesting Hebrew word being used here. I don't often, in reading through the Proverbs, I don't often go back to the Hebrew words because the translations are pretty accurate. But this word, the worthless person, is actually the word, some people pronounce it Belial. Some say Belial. Belial. But that is a word that is later also used in the Bible for Satan, the most worthless person. And so this idea of the Belial person, the worthless person, is comparing him to Satan, to a wicked man. And what is the chief characteristic that designates him as a worthless, wicked man? He's one who walks with a false mouth. You can't trust him. If he says something to you, you can't rely on him. You can't count on him. And after a while, if you depend on a person like that, you're going to end up equally destroyed as he is because you were depending on him and he didn't come through for you. It's just a bad situation all the way around. That makes him worthless. That makes him a wicked man. So, again, this is an example of how often in the Bible it says your words count. What you say, what you do counts. It matters what you say to people. You walk with a false mouth. One who, verse 13, says one who winks with his eye, who signals with his feet, who points with his finger, who with Perversity in his heart devises evil continually. 
Devising evil means that he's making up plans of the evil things, the bad things, the harmful, the hurtful things that he can do. And he does it because he's perverse in his heart. His heart is corrupt to begin with. So verse 13 implies that he has little signals that he uses. He may speak to you to your face and tell you things you want to hear. But because he has a false and a lying mouth, if you watch his eyes when he winks or how he signals over here or, you know, hand signals, you know, you can be talking in a group of people and somebody will come around that you're not particularly fond of. And then you uh, act like you like them and you talk, oh, great, okay, sure, no problem, I'll be there, go ahead. And they walk away and you give the rest of your friends one of these, you go, <laughs> okay, well, that little hand motion that nobody saw on the internet, which means they're probably imagining something completely different than what I actually did, I put my thumb out in a hitchhiking motion to kind of point at the guy. And that's what verse 13 is getting at, whether it's a wink of the eye, like, oh, yeah, sure, or signaling with his feet or pointing with his finger, oh, that guy. These are all designations that what he is saying is false. What he's saying is a lie because he's perverse in his heart, and so he's always devising some way to cause trouble, some way to bring about evil And to spread strife. In other words, to bring about calamity, to cause danger, to cause trouble. Therefore, his calamity will come suddenly. Instantly, he will be broken and there will be no healing. Okay, so on the back of his little story about men with false mouths, who are worthless and wicked people, on the back of that, Solomon thinks, well, you know, there are actually six things that the Lord hates. And this is worth paying attention to. Solomon's going to give us a list of six things that the Lord hates. So you certainly ought to try to avoid these things. But then he says, yes, and the seventh are an abomination to God. Now, we've seen this construction of three, yea, even four. We saw that back in Job. Later in Proverbs, we're going to see this same mathematical construction again of, well, there's this many plus one. And usually what that means is that the plus one is sort of a culmination or a summation of everything that went before it. And so there's six things that God hates, but the seventh is an abomination to God. The seventh, I will tell you right up front, is sowing discord among brethren. That's an abomination before God. Now, I know many a preacher who likes to point out that there are certain activities, certain characteristics of human beings that are abominable before God. And they'll go back and they'll look at the law and they'll say these things are an abomination before God. And they're right. Those are an abomination. But when was the last time that you heard a preacher say, but you know, even going among people who are brethren and causing dissension among them, causing discord, disharmony, 
breaking up the fellowship that they have, getting in the middle of that and causing some kind of upset is equally an abomination before God. We have to remember that too. The same way that we're told gossip is terrible before God, we also have to know that spreading any sort of discord, any kind of disfellowship, you go into the New Testament and you read that you're supposed to mark a man who is a schismatic, somebody who's sowing discord in a church. You're supposed to mark that fellow and have nothing to do with him. Same idea in the Old Testament, that a person who causes this kind of dissension is abominable before God. So let's look at these six things that the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him, The first one in verse 17 is haughty eyes. The Lord hates haughty eyes. Haughty eyes is the opposite of looking downward. If you are humble, if you know the God you walk before, then rather than looking up this way, like, I own the world, I'm in control, I got a hold of it, and you're nothing but dig me. Instead, you should walk in a humble manner where you're looking downward, keeping your position appropriate. A proud look, absolutely. I thank you, I'm not like this publican would be a perfectly good example. And we see examples like that all the way through the Bible, and never is anybody commended for being like that. So, six things God hates. Number one, haughty eyes. Number two, a lying tongue. That shouldn't be a surprise to any of you if you know what James says about bridling your tongue and how your tongue, being such a small member of the body, can can light such great fires. Because your mouth can get you in all kinds of trouble. And a lying tongue, of course, goes right along with the main characteristic of a worthless, wicked, Belial kind of man. He has a false mouth. He's a liar. So haughty eyes, number two, a lying tongue. Number three, hands that shed innocent blood. So does that apply to us in any way? How many abortions do you think there have been so far this year? (laughs) Worldwide, the number gets even bigger. What the babies do. That would make them innocent. That would mean that was innocent blood that's being shed. God hates the shedding of innocent blood. Now, granted, when Solomon wrote this, He was speaking of people who lay in wait because they're going to enrich themselves on the back of the people that they kill and then rob. He's speaking of people who, out of their greed, out of their wickedness, are conspiring all kinds of evil continually that includes bloodshed. But because in the society we live in right now, you don't see that kind of laying in wait bloodshed, mostly because when we travel around these days, we're in metal automobiles, and it's much tougher to fall on us when we're doing 60 miles an hour. But 
the innocent blood concept, the innocent blood idea, is still just as prevalent today as it's ever been. Human beings are still shedding innocent blood. And God hates that. Or a heart that devises wicked plans. Anybody who's sitting around thinking about doing anything that doesn't comport with what holiness, righteousness, and godliness is, then they're conspiring to bring wicked plans to bear. Or feet that run rapidly toward evil. You may recall in the past weeks, Solomon has said, you know where the evil is, don't go there. You know where the bad stuff is, don't go there. Well, this is the opposite of that. This is, you know where the bad stuff is, and you run toward it. You can't wait to get to where the evil is. Feet that run rapidly toward evil, and a false witness who utters lies. That takes you all the way back to the Ten Commandments. Which one? Takes you back to the Ninth Commandment. Why? Because cats lie. That's right. Takes you all the way back to don't bear false witness against your neighbor. And if you bear false witness, then you're uttering lies. And then the seventh, the NASB says, one who spreads strife among brothers. I grew up memorizing the King James Version of that. The seventh abomination is spreading discord among brethren. So six things God hates. We ought to be very aware of that. We ought to be cautious of that. We ought to be careful to keep our eyes down. We ought to be careful to make sure we always tell the truth and that our hands are doing good things. The Bible tells us whatever your hand finds to do, do it as unto the Lord because God hates hands that shed innocent blood. Watch your heart. Don't devise wicked plans. And watch your feet. Don't run toward evil. We've already been told, run away from evil. And don't be a false witness. Because when you're a false witness, then you're ultimately lying. And God hates a lying tongue. And do not spread discord among brethren. If you find people who are in unity, who are brethren, especially if their unity is around Christ, then the last thing you should do is get in the middle of that and try to cause discord, try to cause schism. God says that's an abomination. Those people are in unity. Stay out of the way. My son, says verse 20, observe the commandment of your father and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them. Bind that teaching continually onto your heart. That means tie it, wrap it onto your heart. Tie it around your neck. When you walk about, that teaching will guide you. And when you sleep, that teaching will watch over you. When you awake, that teaching will talk to you. It will instruct you. For the commandment, is a lamp, and the teaching is light. And reproofs, which are corrections, reproofs for discipline are the very way of life. 
In other words, you have to be reproved. You have to be connected. That concept carries all the way into the book of Hebrews. We've quoted it so many times. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Even Paul says that the word of God is God-breathed, theonostos, that the Bible is the very word of God and that it's appropriate for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So reproof and discipline are the very way of life. So he's saying, this teaching that I'm giving you, this teaching that you get from your mother, bind it to you, tie it to you, live by it. It will protect you day and night. It will show you the way to walk. And if it corrects you, if it reproves you, if it goes against your natural fleshly inclinations, it's meant to, because that is the way of life. These disciplines, these reproofs are the way of life. Now, starting at verse 24 and all the way through chapter 7, he's going to talk about sexual morality. This is interesting to me because by the time we get to chapter 7, it's only seven chapters into Proverbs. Much of it was introductory information. And yet this is the fifth time he's brought up sexual morality. We're only seven chapters in. And five times that's where Solomon went. Because he's teaching his son. He's teaching the young men. And he's saying to the young men, you've got to be careful sexually. You've got to be careful. Now, he's going to talk about the evil woman. But then he's going to talk about the adulteress. He's going to also speak of a harlot. Do you two, being parents, mind that I'm using that language? Is that okay? All right. Okay. Solomon's going to be pretty straightforward here. Not graphic, but straightforward. But here's what I want to emphasize from it. Hang on a second. Let me get a drink of water while Tom takes a call. So let me say this. Uh, And really, this is a result of ongoing conversations that I've been having with Janine, my wife, who, uh, to be honest with you, is a lot smarter than I am. You will notice, and the reason that I'm putting emphasis on the fact that seven chapters into Proverbs, he's already brought up sexual morality five times, and his example of sexual morality all has to do with Adultery has to do with fornication, prostitution, and one man, one woman in marriage, that's the only allowable sexual union. At this point in the church's history, we've gone so far past that that it seems like when people talk about sexual purity these days, they're arguing about homosexuality or the LGBTYQ, I don't know how many letters, community, or or even pedophilia. Mm -hmm. Now, the Bible does already have specific prohibitions in the law against things like sex between siblings, or between relatives, bestiality, it mentions that, mentions homosexuality, it mentions that. 
But the primary thing it keeps going back to is heterosexual, inappropriate sex. And I think in so many ways, the church these days, trying to fight the onslaught of the society that is going to hell in a handbasket and moving so quickly. I just saw an article the other day from people who are trying to make it legal, and I forget what state it was, I think it was California, where pretty much everything seems to, the the country seems to tip toward the West and every evil thing rolls down to California. But they're trying to make love with minors legal now. They call them maps. They call them minor attractive persons. And I thought, if you're trying to give it a fancy, non-offensive name to it, you're disguising the evil. Right. And so when the church talks about sexual purity, it has to deal with that. It has to deal with, no, no, that's pedophilia. It has to deal with homosexuality. No, no, because the church now has embraced homosexuality in so many arenas and so many corners and, and our ordaining gay clergy and you know all that stuff is going on. So we're fighting that fight. We're so busy putting out fires where everything else is concerned that we have also forgotten that equally bad and far more often mentioned in the Bible is just heterosexual inappropriate sex. Anything outside of one man, one woman in marriage, any sex outside of that is inappropriate sex. And so oftentimes in the church, you'll see people who are engaged in all sorts of sexuality that they shouldn't be. And the church kind of looks the other way because they're so busy putting out these other fires. But let's be really, really clear with everything that Solomon's about to tell us, everything we're about to read heterosexual outside of marriage is equally wrong as the homosexuality and as the bestiality and as the pedophilia and as the, you know, that growing list. Just because the list keeps growing, it doesn't mean that the first things are any less a sin. They're still a sin. We're still called to sexual purity, even though the society and way too much of the church is denigrating itself into all these other categories where when people are sleeping together outside of marriage, we're prone to kind of think, well, at least they're heterosexual. It's still wrong, is my point. It's still unbiblical. It's still abominable. It's still sin. And the same way, that God is a forgiving God and grace can cover your sin, rebellion makes it a whole lot harder. Let's put it that way. When you start justifying your sin and saying that it's not sin, well, then you're not repentant. And if you're not repentant, you can't expect God to forgive you for your sin because you're still shaking your fist at him rather than putting yourself down in front of him and begging him to forgive you for your sin. And I think too much of the world and too much of the church world, too much of the professing evangelical world has this notion that heterosexual sex outside of of marriage is kind of okay, or it's right, or it's justifiable, or nobody's caught me up on it, so I can keep doing it. But that's just as wrong as all the other stuff that we know is abominable. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. 
I mean, we got to make sure that we keep our categories straight. Just because we're fighting a firefight over on this side doesn't mean that the other stuff in the Bible isn't equally true. Yeah. Sometimes a church will look in the other direction of something they know is wrong because it could trigger a very mild drop in income, which tells you where their priority is. Yeah. All right, so let's start reading. We need to get done here in a minute. Chapter 6, verse 24. The reason for the commandment, the reason for the reproofs and the discipline is to keep you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. That means she's going to flatter you. He's going to give an example in chapter 7 of what that would look like. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her catch you with her eyelids. In other words, she might bat her little eyes at you. Men, by the way, let's just admit it, men are pushovers. (laughs) Men, I mean, we're just, we're pathetic. All it takes is one woman to just talk to us nice in the grocery store line, and we get all built up, put our chest out and go, oh yeah, that's right, I still got it. Oh, well, this is is an important reality. (laughs) Do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her catch you with her eyelids. For on account of a harlot, that's a prostitute, one is reduced to a loaf of bread. Now, that doesn't mean he becomes a loaf of bread. What it means is, doesn't matter how much money you start with, if you start paying a prostitute, you're going to end up giving her everything you've got till you're down to your last loaf of bread. So don't even start paying a harlot. For on account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread and an adulteress hunts for the precious life. Can a man take fire into his bosom and his clothes not be burned? I know my grandmother used to use that phrase all the time. Play with fire, you're going to get burned. Well, that's where she was getting it from. Solomon says you can't play with fire and not get burned. Can a man take fire into his bosom, clutch it to his chest, hold it on his lap, and his clothes not be burned? Or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not get scorched? Okay, he's saying those are realities. You play with fire, you get burned. Walk on hot coals, you're going to get scorched. Mess with a harlot. She's going to take all your money. She's going to take all your stuff. You're going to end up destitute. These are just realities of life. So is the one who goes in to his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. Now, the law says that if she and he are caught in adultery, they're to be stoned. So there are many different ways in which getting caught with your neighbor's wife not only is disrespecting your neighbor, but it is also punishable by death in Israel. So whoever touches her, he says, will not go unpunished. And there are many ways that you can end up punished. You can, her husband can find out. He can come after you like the avenger of blood. And by rights, he can go after you. You can catch any number of diseases. You never really know. Or you can be caught and stoned. You will be punished. Verse 30, 
Men do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is hungry. In other words, a thief who steals bread because his family is starving will still be tried as a thief, but they'll be sympathetic to him because he had a just cause. But he'll still have to pay it back. But when he is found, says verse 31, he must repay it sevenfold. That's what the law says. Even if he has to give all the substance of his house, even if his sevenfold payment means that he ends up with nothing, that's what's fair, that's what's just, that's what's right. The one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He who would destroy himself does that. So the price for adultery is not only not something that people sympathize with, but even a thief can get fair treatment, but he still has to pay it back. But somebody who commits adultery, you have to pay your price. And the price you're going to pay is to destroy yourself. Verse 33, wounds and disgrace he will find. In other words, once it's known that he's an adulterer within Israel, he's going to be disgraced. And his reproach, his shame will not be blotted out. For jealousy enrages a man. That would be the jealous husband whose woman you have committed adultery with, and he will not spare in the day of vengeance. A jealous man can do all kinds of damage, and he's legally in the right. He will not accept any ransom. Again, the thief who stole because he had to, he's just going to pay it back sevenfold, and then they're going to accept the ransom. But an adulterer, they're not going to accept any ransom. They're going to want the full cost, which is your life. Nor will he be content, though you give him many gifts. No, really, I took your wife, but here, I'll give you this, and I'll give you that, and I'll give you that. No, what he wants is what the law requires, which is your life. So that takes us to chapter 7, which is actually a narrative. So we should be able to read through it pretty quickly. My son, keep my words, treasure my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and live. And my teaching, keep it as the apple of your eye, the very center of your eye. Bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. In other words, we have that bond, we're family. You are my sister. And call understanding your intimate friend that they may keep you from an adulteress, from the foreigner who flatters you with her words. For at the window of my house, I looked out through my lattice. So Solomon now is going to say, this is a story. This actually happened to me. One day I was looking out the window and I saw a bunch of young men and I saw one of them falling for a flattering woman. Don't be like that. So he's going to recount the narrative, recount the story. I was at the window of my house, and I looked out through my lattice, and I saw among the naive, the very young, I discerned among the youths a young man who was lacking sense. Passing through the street near her corner, 
And he takes the way to her house in the twilight, in the evening. Now, remember Solomon has said, you know where the trouble is, stay away from it. This young man purposefully keeps walking by the house where the troublesome woman is. Just kind of waiting to get trapped. So that's why he would say, he's young, he's naive, and he lacks sense. You know where the trouble is, don't go there. But this young man passing through the street near her corner, and he takes the way to her house. In the twilight, of course, in the evening, in the middle of the night, and in the darkness. And behold, a woman comes to meet him, dressed like a harlot and cunning of heart. She's going to cause this young boy's downfall, and she knows it, and she's doing it cunningly. She's boisterous and rebellious. That's that whole haughty look thing. She comes on strong. She's very bold. There's no humility in her. Her feet do not remain at home, which is where she should be. She is now in the streets and now in the square and lurks by every corner. So she seizes him and kisses him. And with a brazen face, she says to him, brazen face means just as bold as you can be. No shame, no humility to her. She says to him, I was due to offer peace offerings today, and I have paid my vows. Really interesting. Okay, when you went and offered a peace offering, and the priest would slaughter the animal, you would bring some of that animal home with you, and usually you would have a feast that evening. You would eat that night from the portions of the meat from the sacrifice that you brought back. But it also designates you as a religious person. I have already done my religious things. I've already paid my peace offering. I've already paid my vow, which also means I've got a good meal inside. All you got to do is come in Share my food with me. You know, that's really all I'm expecting from you. And you can trust me because I'm a religious person. I'm a good person. I've paid my vows. You can trust me. She's very cunning. Therefore, I've come out to meet you, to seek your presence earnestly. And I found you. What a nice surprise. I was just out here and you were out here and you were by my house and I was out in the street dressed like a harlot, but hey, I'm a religious person. I'm fine. I'm good. Come with me. Have a little meal. It's all good. And then she says, verse 16, I have spread my couch with coverings, with colored linens of Egypt. In other words, expensive coverings over my couch, the place where you would recline. I have sprinkled my bed with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon. In other words, my bed smells sweet. Come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses. Let us just fall into this sweet little love that we're going to have for each other. And then she says in verse 19, for the man... The man of the house is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. 
he's taken a bag of money with him, which means he's going to be gone for a while. And at the full moon, he's going to come home. And the full moon's apparently not for a few more days, which means I'm married. My husband's not home. Why don't you come into my house, into my sweet bed, and I'll make you a feast that you can eat. And, and it's okay. You can trust me. I'm a really good person. I've already paid my vows. already did all my religious stuff. Come on. Come to me. You see how cunning she's being? The man is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He has taken a bag of money with him. And at the full moon, he will come home. With her are many persuasions. And she entices him with her flattering lips. She seduces him. And suddenly, no surprise, he follows her. But notice what Solomon likens it to. He follows her the same way an ox will go to the slaughter. The same way that the fetters are like discipline to a fool. (laughs) In other words, he follows her not knowing that he's on his way to be fettered, to be tied down, to be trapped, to be slaughtered. So he's going to go with her. Suddenly he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as one in fetters to discipline goes like a fool until an arrow pierces through his liver. That's certain death. As a bird hastens to the snare. Birds don't do that, by the way. Birds fly away from the snare. Birds escape the snare. Birds try to get out of the snare. He says, he's like a bird going into the snare, into the trap. He knows the trouble's right there. He's been hanging around there. He knows where the trouble is, and now he's been invited in. He's going in like an animal waiting to be slaughtered. So he does not know that it's going to cost him his life. Now, therefore, my sons, now that I've told you that story, listen to me and pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many are the victims that she will cast down. And numerous are all her slain. Notice that word. Not many are her lovers. Many are the people she's made happy or had an enjoyable evening with. Many are those who she will corrupt, who she will destroy, who she will bring to the edges of death. Her house, verse 27, is the way to Sheol, the way to the grave, the way to death. And descending to her chambers is like descending into death. Now, as I pointed out already once, and I'm just going to reiterate it again, we're only seven chapters in Proverbs. Solomon's been handing out wisdom. He's been saying, cling to my wisdom, learn from me, learn discipline. And he goes five times now toward sexual purity, sexual morality. Now that ought to tell us something. That ought to tell us that the proclivities of human beings, we being sexual beings, the proclivity is To say, well, my urge, my desire, my want is more important than God's rules. And I ought to have what I want to have because I want to have it. And the desire to have it is so great that God's just going to have to understand that I did it because 
I just really, really wanted to. But the better part of wisdom is to understand what God has said, what the allowable rules are, and it's better to marry than to burn. That's what the Apostle Paul says. But let every man have his own wife. And then the writer of Hebrews says, and the marriage bed is not defiled. So if you want to be a person who engages in sexual activity, get married. Have your own husband, have your own wife, one man, one woman for life. That's the God-type instruction, the God-type rule. That's what's written into the law. That's what's repeated in the New Testament. And it is such a problem among human beings that Solomon has to bring it up and bring it up and bring it up and bring it up. And so much of the law of God has to do with sexuality and sexual purity. It's a really, really big and really, really important topic that our society right now is saying is not such a big deal and that every kind of sexuality and every kind of perversion is is okay whatever a person wants to do behind closed doors even if they want to parade it in the streets in front of you and claim that they're proud of it that you're just supposed to let them and you can't say anything you're politically incorrect if you say anything against all of these various perversions and abominations that the bible says are perversions and abominations but society says are not really that important so you have to draw a line you have to make a differentiation you have to decide am i really a person of god or am i a person of this world and it's clear by just how you conduct your body how you live, how you speak, whether you're honest, whether you lie, whether your heart devises evil, and whether you use your body for perverse things and corrupt things, or whether you keep your body in check in order to follow after the mandates, the instructions, the sometimes not enjoyable instructions, which is why the writer of Hebrews says, whom the Lord loves, he does chasten. And chastening your body, instructing your body, and using your body for godly purposes is what it is to be a child of God. And sexuality is right there at the center of it. So we have to remember that. Any questions about that? I might be wrong to say this, but if I am, please tell me. But from my understanding... I know we're sealed with the Holy Spirit under grace mm-hmm. since the cross. But from my understanding before that, the Holy Spirit was upon, upon that person, not in the person. And so that gave me that gave me the idea that person wasn't always sealed with the Holy Spirit. So it's, at some point, Solomon wrote all these things that full of wisdom that God gave him. But I'm back to where I was at the beginning with, this, with the, the concubines and wives that which led him astray to, to um, I think, if I'm not mistaken, he burned his burned babies. Um, well, he loved many strange women, and as a consequence, <clears throat> he followed after foreign gods. Yeah. And as a consequence, God took the northern ten tribes away from his son. Yeah. I mean, he paid a high price for loving foreign women. But, but let's be specific there. God didn't say, I'm taking the kingdom away from your son because you had too many wives. What he said was, you loved foreigners 
which the law was very clear about that Israel was only to intermarry among Israel. And because he took foreign wives, fell in love with them, they introduced their gods. And he, apparently to satisfy them, also worshipped these foreign gods. That was adulterous against God. The sin there was not that he had too many wives. The sin there was that he had wives that he wasn't allowed to have. Now, we do have to remember, I guess the, the summation of all that is, we do have to remember that the Middle East 3,000 years ago was very, very different than America today. Um, context. Context matters, yeah. The society was very different. And, and remember that as Solomon is teaching wisdom, uh, much of what he's teaching is straight from the law, including those ideas that you could be stoned for adultery. I mean, that's what the law says. So you get into the New Testament, you look at Jesus dealing with the adulterous woman. You had all the men who wanted to stone her, which is exactly what the law said. And he says, well, if you're without sin, cast that stone, you know. So it changes. New lawgiver, exactly. All right, that was all mighty interesting. Did you gain anything from tonight? Mm-hmm. Was it worth digging into? All right, good. Any more questions? Stay away from the woman's house. Stay away from the woman's house. All right, say goodbye to the internet congregation. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.